to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, resilience, COVID-19, crisis management, anything that's relatable to those subjects. Uh, Speaking of subjects, if there is something you want us to talk about on the show or you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out. There is a button underneath the graphic on the homepage for the show that says send the host an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything I get. And we've had uh, quite a few guests actually on the show who have uh, reached out that way. So please feel free to do that yourself. If you have a product or service you'd like to advertise and talk about on the show, again, reach me the same way and I can get you some information on that. Remind everyone that uh, the Continuity and Resilience Today Conference or CRT October 7th and 8th, it will be virtual, and I will be speaking at that conference, and uh, we'll be having a live channel where I hope to uh, be able to speak to um, some of the speakers there and organizers and, you know, give some of, of my own commentary as the conference goes through. So check that out. And the BCI World Conference, November 5th and 6th, I will be speaking on uh, one of those days. I haven't seen the uh, the schedule yet, but uh, I will be presenting uh, virtually again with that conference uh, November 5th and 6th. Now to today's show, it is our monthly chat with Regina Phelps, and we're going to talk about all things relatable to COVID-19 and what's happening. Regina, welcome back. Alex, this is, is our monthly chat. We've become a regular thing. We have. You know, it's enjoyable <laughs> for me. I keep learning. <laughs> Well, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic's not going away uh, in the very long and foreseeable future. So I think this will be a monthly thing for a while. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, the monthly chats are great, but it's sad that we actually have to have them about the same subject all the time. Yeah, I totally agree on that one. Speaking of which, what's the status so far, especially with the United States? What's going on? Oh. Uh, uh, uh. Well, let me talk about maybe the better news, which is the rest of the world, and then I'll talk about my country, which, as you as you just mentioned, is kind of a mess. So globally, as of today, which is August 17th, I know this is airing in a few more days, but uh, there's 21 million, almost 22 million cases worldwide, and about 776,000 deaths. Um, and what the thing that's interesting, Alex, is that there there are some countries who have done just really stellar jobs in knocking down this virus who have had flare-ups, and I want to call them out just simply because it talks, it really illustrates how how tenacious the virus is and that we cannot let down our guard at all. So New Zealand, of course, which, you know, my gosh, for over 100 days they had no cases at all. They're living a life like everybody wishes they could have, right? No, you know, no real restrictions at all. Uh, and just about uh, five or six days ago, they had 78 active cases. Most of them were in quarantine, and but there was a small uh, group that was actually created because somebody had violated a quarantine and infected their entire family. 
So that wasn't good. And in South Korea, in the last couple of days, as of um, today, they've actually had four straight cases, uh, straight, four straight days of new cases in the triple digits. Uh, for a four-day running total now, of 745 cases, and they had had again no cases for weeks. And again, it was an event tied to a church in which there were a lot of people pressed together in a small amount of space, singing and being in very close proximity. And you know, I guess I'm calling those two out because what it says is that you have to be super careful continuously and ongoing, at least until we have a really widely available uh, vaccine, which we can talk about later, but it's really a tenacious issue. So then that gets to the United States, which, of course, is where I live. And I, and I think the last time we spoke, I just said, sadly, my country, unfortunately, is just a mess, and it's done a... It's, we've had really poor leadership from the top all the way since the beginning of this uh, pandemic, and it has not gotten any better. Today, we're at about 5.5 million cases with about 170,000 deaths. We expect now, and Labor Day, which is September 7th here in the U.S., that we will be at over 200,000 cases. And that's just sort of mind-boggling because it wasn't that long ago where there was a speculation that there would be maybe 100,000 deaths in total through the entire pandemic, which however long that takes. We've been having about 1,000 deaths a day for the past 14 days. You know, that's like a couple of triple sevens uh, crashing out of the sky every day, uh, which is just mind-boggling. And the problem that we've got is really a persistent level of infection. So there's this virus everywhere. And so one area starts to get better, and then another gets worse. We have 14 states that have positivity rates of over 10%, which means it's almost impossible for anybody to do contact tracing uh, and really any kind of uh, respective follow-up of quarantine and isolation because 10%, you know, if you're testing hundreds of thousands of of um, uh, citizens in the course of a week, it's just impossible. And so what that means is that there's a lot of places that are going to be too risky to open as far as schools and certainly businesses. And just to give you a sense of numbers, New York has less than 1% positivity rates, which means that you're tested and, 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 and that's about 1% of everybody tested that day versus many states that are now 10%, which is a big deal, which sort of gets to the testing issue which is applicable, of course, in many places of the world about wanting more and different types of tests. But the United States has been plagued with this since the very beginning. But a new saliva test was approved over the weekend by the FDA. And you'll start to see this probably in a variety of places around the world. It was developed at Yale, actually with support by the NBA, the National Basketball Association, because they were thinking about it for their own players. And it's a spit-in-the-cup kind of test. It's done much more quickly in a lab. It requires less sophisticated um, machinery and skills. And it's going to be uh, potentially, if it turns out to be effective, could be a real um, help for schools and businesses that are really trying to assess whether it's safe to go back. Well, let's hope that one works out because that right now that could uh, add, you know, that could make things so much easier for people who don't like the swab in the nose and some of the yeah, the swab in the nose is painful. Have you had that done yet? No, I haven't. Have you been tested? No, I haven't been tested. I haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) Ah, yeah, I've gotten tested (laughs) once um, because I had symptoms that were somewhat possible to be COVID. And, uh, oh, the, the, the swab up the nose is painful, and you just have to think about something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> oh, one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, but you know, going back to the the stats that we have, I, I just want to give you a comparison because maybe some of your listeners uh, are in the EU. So the EU, uh, you know, just to give you a sense of comparing it to the U.S., they really talk about how severe the case count and deaths are in the United States. The United States has reported again, as I mentioned, somewhere around um, around um, five hundred and. Um, 50,000 deaths, um, or excuse me, uh, 550,000 cases, 5.5 million cases, but that's nearly triple what they have in Europe, which is only 1.9 million, which is amazing, right? So Europe, all Hmm. of Europe, not not counting the the, uh, UK anymore, that's 1.9 million cases versus our 5.5 million and the U.S. has a population that is one-third smaller than Europe. So, you know, we're much smaller, and yet we've got, you know, almost uh, two times more cases. And also from a death perspective, another a leading indicator is that the U.S. daily caseload is, uh, over the past 30 days, uh, is really so much higher than Europe. And, uh, I mean, in the sense of Europe's been having an average of about 8,800 cases a day, and we have about, you know... 50,000 cases every day. <laughs> so wow. it really is, oh my gosh, it's a sad state of affairs. And the U.S. is bigger than Europe, too. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, and so we're bigger. We have, um, actually, no, if you, count, if you count Europe, actually, the population, we're one-third smaller than Europe. You count all the countries yeah. in the EU. So we're smaller, but we have a lot more cases. We have a lot more deaths. Um, and that's with a bunch of countries all lined up, and some that had really serious outbreaks, like Spain and, and uh, Italy. But I think the thing that everybody is really looking to now and probably expressing a lot of concern is, you know, the idea that we could have the, I love this term, Alex, the twindemic. Have you heard that term yet? No, I haven't heard that one. What's that mean? Twindemic. If we have a flu um uh, severe severe flu season along with the coronavirus, oh. we could have the twindemic. How do you like that? Let's see. Um, not looking forward to that at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, do, I just wanted to make uh, one clarity. You mentioned um, uh, Labor Day, and uh, we since we do have listeners around the globe, I just want to clarify what Labor Day is, where... <laughs> Gina said from 170,000 cases to potentially 200,000 plus cases by Labor Day. We are speaking October, uh, sorry, August 17th. Labor Day is September 7th. So in that two weeks Thank you for mentioning that, um, Alex, because it is September 7th in the U.S. So I know there are Labor Days all over the world, but ours is September 7th. So we're saying essentially in another two and a half or three weeks, we're going to have up to 200,000 deaths. We'll probably exceed that, actually. And that that's ludicrous. I know, you know, uh, if I went anywhere, there are towns around here that are 30,000. It's like wiping them off the map. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good way to think about it. Think about, you know, um, because, you know, the United States, of course, is citizens wise is much larger than Canada. Uh, My state is larger than the nation of Canada. And it would be like taking, you know, the population of Canada Literally, and it would be gone in a second. I mean, that's the part that's just amazing to me. That's a lot of people, a lot of people, right? It is. So, what's the fall looking looking like then? With with the uh, as you the term you used, twindemic. You know, what what can we expect? You know, anything positive? 
You know, there is some good news, actually, to be honest with you, Alex, and that is that um, looking at the, you know, when we're always trying to figure out what could happen with the flu season in um, in our year, in the fall, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, we always look to the South. And so there's been eyes peering to the Southern Hemisphere for the last few months, watching what's happening with their um, flu season. And there's been some actually really surprising news. And that is that because of social distancing, physical distancing, two meters or more, because of a lot of people wearing masks, uh, what's happened, and a lot more hand hygiene and all of that, what's happened is that the flu season in the Southern Hemisphere has been very light, very insignificant. And yeah, it's actually been very surprising. And they're thinking it's because of two reasons. One is because people really double down on getting vaccinated. Number one, that's very good. Secondarily, the fact that people are wearing masks, they are physically distanced, um, they are washing their hands, and thirdly, uh, there's not so much international travel introducing and moving people all over the place, allowing for a sick person in Argentina to all of a sudden fly to uh, Colombia and be, um, you know, pass on a virus in a different country. So it's actually hopeful, makes me a little hopeful that we'll actually um, maybe have, knock on wood, the potential for having less flu than usual if we had those same things apply. People got vaccinated. People wore a mask, they physically distanced, and we have less travel overall. That would be great. Do you think that's going to happen here? Because we you know, we see in the news so much, you know, so many anti-vaxxers and all these people, oh, it doesn't help, it doesn't help. But with COVID-19 now, do you think maybe some people up here might actually get it now? They understand You know, that's a really why? good question. So, you know, I will say to you, Alex, that the, the thing about vaccines is that for the COVID vaccine, there are already people saying that they're not going to get vaccinated. And about 50% of Americans are saying they'll not get vaccinated. Um, and that, that's the concern. And if that carries over into the influenza season and the influenza shot, that could also be a big deal. So, yes, anti-vaxxers will have an impact on this. My um, hope, though, and uh, again, there are st- uh, still masks and even physical distancing is a big deal here in the United States where there are still people, even in states where it's mandated, to not wear a mask or to be in places that are in very close proximity with each other. So whether it's family gatherings, whether it's uh, people going to a church or something like that where people are inside in close physical spaces. So my concern about the fall and the winter is, is when it gets cold, more and more people will go inside. If we do have people meeting in, in groups inside without distancing and without masks, we have a greater opportunity for disease spread, either flu or COVID. And the big issue about all of that is that at least here in the United States, as an example, every year there's about 50,000 people that die from the flu and has, in many cases, a very big impact on hospitals, hospitalizations, ICU admissions. And so that, coupled with COVID, could make, um, at least for America, I can speak about the healthcare system, it could make it extremely challenging, and there could be an opportunity for the healthcare system to become overrun with too many patients. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm no health ex- expert, which is why I'm glad I'm talking to you. But if you have uh, pre-con, uh, pre-existing, pre-existing conditions, conditions? You know, or you catch the flu, you have a greater chance of getting COVID-19. Is that correct? 
It can be. So the thing about the thing about uh, the the if you already have an illness. So for example, if you have the flu and then you actually did come in contact with a COVID virus, it could be a greater opportunity that you would get it because your lungs would already be impacted. Your nasal passages would already be infected and swollen, and you you would have a like more likelihood of possibly getting it if you were exposed to the COVID virus at the same time. And there have been cases in Europe, also actually in Africa, where there have been documented cases of people who had the flu and they got COVID, and um, in many cases it made for a much more difficult course. Oh, I can imagine. I, I, I don't like getting the flu. I can't imagine having both. You know, a cold drives me up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's and I will say to you that the flu, uh, it, it can be very, very uh, debilitating for a lot of people. And COVID, as we already know, it can be as well. So it would be a bad combination. Well, I take my, I get my needle every year. So I'll be, Good for I think you. I'll I be do too. first in line. I do too. I think I'll be first in line this year. I want your listeners to do the same thing. Go get your flu shot right now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Regina Phelps about all things COVID-19. We'll be right back. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. From fact-checking Hollywood blockbusters on the economic impact of COVID-19 on the hunting industry to August fishing reports and mandatory early season hunting to-do lists, The Revolution with Jim and Trav this week is giving you need-to-know outdoor intel. Joining the boys is Kenneth Lancaster of The Given Right, Terry Shepard from Hollywood Weapons, and Cat Daddy. The Revolution is presented by Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, World Fishing Network, and My Outdoor TV. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. 
welcome back to the show. Today we are talking once again with Regina Phelps about all things related to COVID-19. Regina, let's start this second segment. What's the latest with vaccines and therapeutics? Sure. You know, I think the thing about the vaccine and the therapeutic um, uh, issue is that there's just new information all the time. So let me just give your listeners a quick um, snapshot as to where we are. Currently today, so today is August 17th, uh, there's 135-plus vaccines that have not even entered any human trials. So that's just right off the top of the bat. Uh, there's 19 now currently that are actually in what's called Phase 1, which, again, to remind your listeners, that's about 10 or so people that get the vaccine, and it's actually proving both two things. One, it promotes an immune response, and secondarily, it is not going to kill you. Uh, phase two, there are 12 vaccines right now, and those are a little bit more detailed uh, in their uh, um, design. That's a few more people, maybe as many as 50 or to 100, and uh, it's actually looking at efficacy and safety, but also trying to figure out what the dose would be. So they're experimenting with different dose levels. In phase three, uh, there's eight uh, vaccines that are in that trial. That's where we have a large number of people, 35 to 70,000 people. And it's a placebo trial, so some will get the shot. It's for real, and some will get the placebo. And there are two, count them, Alex, two that have been approved for use. Now, those uh, okay. you may not necessarily want to run out and get. Uh, one's been done by a Chinese company. The other one's done by Russia. The one that uh, has been done by Russia has got a lot of news coverage in the last few days. Um, it mm-hmm. never even, it, it just started its phase three trial. Uh, they still have not really enrolled anybody yet for that trial, but yet they're already pushing it out commercially on the market. Um, they're offering it in Russia uh, to people as if they, if they volunteer to take it. And I understand they're trying now to sell 150 million doses to Brazil to see if that might help them. But uh, it's had very limited human testing to, point, to this point, which is a little disconcerting. Couldn't that be dangerous? It could be because they really don't know um, I mean, the, 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 the testing that they've had so far has been done on a very, if it's done like most clinical trials, they would have had probably only about a couple hundred people that would have actually gotten it to this point. And, of course, the more people you give it to, um, the more you're going to discover that there are uh, potential side effects that you didn't know about in the, in the limited number of people that got it. And it's, it's given to different people with different um, uh, uh, physical problems and comorbidities. So, yeah, it, it could be problematic, and there's some concern here in uh, the United States and in Europe that uh, if indeed it has some bad outcomes, that people will point to that and say, see, that's why you shouldn't be getting vaccinated because of what happened. So uh, there's a little bit of anxiety about this, as you might imagine. It, it, it almost sounds like uh, one of those traveling uh, um, doctors or you know, whatever you want to call them, you know, in the old West, you know, selling potions, you know, this will cure you, this will cure you without yeah, really oil, right? knowing what it does, you know. Yeah, it's, it's actually very disconcerting to me because I think it has the potential to do harm, first of all, and secondarily could also impact how people feel about uh, vaccines in general, and I think that would be hugely problematic. So I'm, I'm very sad that we are seeing that kind of behavior. So um, the other thing about I would say it to you is that I mentioned earlier is that about 50% of the people in the United States have said they will not take a vaccine. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's interesting is the vaccines that they're looking at here 
to make in the United States actually only have to have to be approved 50% efficacy. So that means that out of 100 people, 50 50 could take the vaccine, but the other 50 may not get any benefit from it. And Alex, you won't know which group you're going to fall in because you don't know what your body's going to do. So that's a little concern I have is that you might get the vaccine thinking like, wow, I'm, I'm good. But in reality, maybe you're one of those people that don't get any antibodies from it. And so that's disconcerting, I think, um, because, again, like, we've like never a had a false sense of security vaccine. type thing. Hmm? Like a false sense of security. Oh, of course. Yeah. Just imagine if you think I, I mean, if I got vaccinated, I'd be thinking like, well, hey, you know, I can I can go out and do whatever. In reality, I may not be able to do that. And I actually still might get sick. And I think that's a little disconcerting. And to give you a sense of how many people need to actually either be infected or be vaccinated for, actually, for us to actually get what's called herd immunity, it's somewhere around 60 to 70% of the population. And currently right now in the United States, even with as much disease as we have, they still think we only have about 10% of the population that has actually got any antibodies in their blood. So we have a long way to go. Do you have any sense about that in Canada, how many people have been infected and what your chance of having, um, you know, the herd immunity is? Have you, has there been any conversation about that in Canada? Um, I'm sure there have. Um, I've been watching and doing a few other things lately, so I haven't, I'm not up to speed. Um, That's all right. The, the only numbers I do remember is that we've, we've broken the 9,000 ceiling for deaths. And I, I had the number actually on a piece of paper, but it's on my desk here, so there's no way I'm going to find it. Your country's been so much better than ours. I would not expect that you would have a lot of antibodies because you haven't had that many cases. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's probably uh, very high right now. You know, but I, yeah. again, you know, I'm not the expert uh, with some of that, so I don't yeah. want to give a number and then you know be way yeah, off. Yeah, I'd be wrong. <laughs> I know. I totally get that. The other thing I wanted to mention was under therapeutics. And, of course, therapeutics are those drugs that you would take once you became ill, and the goal would be is that it would help you have a less serious course of illness. And there were two um, uh, 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 commercially available um, therapeutics that were looking very promising. One is called monoclonal antibodies, and the other one is the antiviral uh, made by Gilead called remdesivir. And they were... um, hoping uh, that they might actually have them available for this fall. But they just both independently last week just released that they are going much slower in their startup than they uh, planned and that now they don't think they'll have their any significant number of people enrolled in their in their test trials uh, until um, the fall and that it may not be until early next year or later that they actually think that they'll actually have any uh, data that they can actually then advance and get approved by the FDA. So what that unfortunately means, um, Alex, is that you could, again, be in a situation where you get COVID-19 and you are maybe not sick enough to be hospitalized, but there's not going to be any medications that are there to get to help you uh, improve and get better. It's just going to be just, you know, the usual kind of ways that you try and protect yourself, but there's no medications to help manage the illness. That, that kind of reminds me, you know, when you get the common cold, there's no cure. There, you know, no matter what right. you take, you've got to go through it. You know, right, exactly. And it's going to be exactly that same thing. So in the vaccine and, and the 
in the therapeutics, there's still, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening, but we're, we, there's no silver bullet, and we're a long way from getting anything that's going to really help us. Well, that reminds me of something else that has come up in the news. Um, there is still that talk about the, uh, I hope I say the name right, hydroxychloroquine. And then oh, I yes. just heard something on the news this morning. Somebody was promoting um, some herbal remedy that said, <laughs> oh, it's, it's great to use. Do you have any comments about either one of those? Well, it's actually so. Hydroxychloroquine has actually been disproved in quite in like about four different studies now that have been, uh, you know, kind of the gold standard where there's been a double-blind placebo uh, control. There have been several. There have been several um, studies that have been quite flawed that have showed that it was helpful. There was one that recently came out of a hospital system here in the United States in Michigan called the Henry Ford um, system, and they actually had published a paper. Oh gosh, maybe a month ago, saying it actually helped very well. It was not a, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and they gave all the patients uh, dexamethasone, which is cortisone. So they all got better, <laughs> but not because of the hydrochloric, uh, not because of the hydrochloric. So, um, so I, I, I would not put my my um, uh, my weight on that particular medication. As far as the herbal medications, and I mean, I think there's a zillion things that are people are saying. You know, people are desperate, or people are trying to make money, Alex. And so, what I would say to you is that in scientific trials and medical research, there are no therapeutics that have shown that for those of us walking around that do get COVID that have helped, the only things that have helped have been um, uh, dexamethasone, if you're seriously ill, that's a cortisone-based product in the hospital, remdesivir, and convalescent plasma. That's it. That's the only thing that in research has been proven effective. So we're about a year away, really, before I could maybe go to you know my local drugstore or my doctor or pharmacy wherever they 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 give uh, they will give these shots because I'm sure that's still not determined how it's going to happen but we're a year right. away before I get in that lineup for my needle right well the other thing too to be honest with you Alex is I don't know about you but um I'm probably not going to be on the top of the list uh, in the United States, and uh, I don't know. I don't even know in Canada if you've figured out who's going to get it. In fact, in the United States, there still has not been a released uh, piece of information about which individuals are on the top of the list to get the vaccine. I hope it is people like healthcare providers. I hope it's people that are police and fire and you know you, military and all those people that need, and then essential workers, and then people that are. Uh, are very susceptible, like people that are elderly. And then probably after then you go through all of those people, and then you and I are going to be at the end of that line. Yeah, that's the same thing I've heard up here, you know, almost in that same order, yep. you know, yep. um, uh, for, for what's going to happen. But a year away, that's still, uh, um, you know, quite some time. And we haven't, you know, for many areas, haven't even been able to make it through a few months. You yeah. Know, how, how long but, are we going to? to wait another year you know i i hate to see where things could end up in that time frame well you know the the when you said that it made me think of the piece of advice that i give all of my clients which is this what you need to do is you need to just stop and say to yourself this is my life this is my life right now um it's my business it's my life it's my community it's what's going on around me and that is not going to change for the long and foreseeable future and I think there's this anticipation or expectation that we are going to all of a sudden have this old life again. 
And really what I'd like you to say, think about is that it will be a very long time, Alex, before we get through this. And I think the other thing to consider is that when we get to the end, we, we may not come back to where we were before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that's why it drives me crazy when I hear, um, I don't like the expression back to normal. Yeah, because I don't either. If, if you go back to normal, to me, that means you haven't learned anything and you haven't moved forward. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And I think, I think that we as a society, uh, in whatever country your listeners are from, whatever industry they're in, their communities, their families, I think there's a great, great, great opportunity for us to sort of ask ourselves, you know, how do we want to be when we, when we get out of this? Because I think, I don't, the longer it goes on, Alex, we will not spring back to where we were. I think that's just naturally going to happen. So if it's another year, year and a half, two years before everybody has uh, been vaccinated or we've all been sick, and um, and I think we're just going to look at this very, very differently. So I hope we look at how we might be able to creatively look at our society, our businesses, our families, our our communities, uh, how we interact, and say, how can we do this in a way that's um, more equitable, uh, is better for everybody? Uh, I think just we have opportunities for reinvention, and I've been really encouraging my clients to think about that broadly, because I think it's a, it could be a brand new world, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, uh, you know, they, people are always saying after COVID nineteen, we you know we should be more resilient. Well. If you want to be more resilient, you have to move forward. You don't go backwards. Right. You know, that's not being resilient. Right. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, on on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. And we are talking today with Regina Phelps about all things related to COVID-19. And we'll be right back. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. From fact-checking Hollywood blockbusters on the economic impact of COVID-19 on the hunting industry to August fishing reports and mandatory early season hunting to-do lists, The Revolution with Jim and Trav this week is giving you need-to-know outdoor intel. Joining the voices, Kenneth Lancaster of The Given Right, Terry Shepard from Hollywood Weapons, and Cat Daddy. The Revolution is presented by Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, World Fishing Network, and My Outdoor TV. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Regina Phelps about all things related to COVID-19. Regina, with fall coming up and uh, in some areas already, schools are opening and having issues. Um, what are your thoughts on COVID-19 and the school school concerns and issues that are happening right now? Well, you know, I think it's I think what parents and teachers and all communities need to be thinking about is flexibility. So, for example, today uh, here in the United States, a very well-known uh, university over in uh, North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, they basically uh, had started um, with all classes being on campus. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, now they immediately today, they had so many cases that were uh, erupting all over their campus, they immediately today pushed everybody to a virtual environment. And I think what that says is what many schools should be thinking about and parents should be thinking about across the world, which is you need to, if you can meet uh, and do education uh, face-to-face, you're lucky and fortunate, and that's great, but you should be planning on the fact that you must, you may need to go virtual. And I think parents are going to be really challenged about how to do online learning and how to basically um, educate their kids and, for many people, be uh, working at the same time. And so what I'm really encouraging our clients to, to really do is to survey their employees Find out how many of them have kids at home and mm-hmm. where their their parents are going to likely have to be helping them with a schooling. And think about ways that they can flex their time and their hours. So perhaps instead of having a straight, you know, nine-to-five kind of job, maybe they end up doing evening hours or they're able to work on a weekend. I know that makes for pretty long and brutal hours for parents, but that way parents could be perhaps more helpful with their kids. But I think we need to be thinking about flexibility, both in education, but also in work. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too, because, you know, there was all the, the argument, kids don't catch COVID-19, they're immune, and then um, you're hearing stories already, like the Chapel Hill one that uh, you mentioned today, and I saw that in the news this morning as well, they're reverting back to e-learning, there's... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there was a photograph of a hallway for a high school uh, a couple of weeks back, um, where there was no social distancing, and now that school, I believe, has now uh, reverted to e-learning as well. So, yep. and anything can happen. You know, obviously, uh, kids are not immune of any age, high yes. schoolers, yeah. university, or young ones. Yes, that's very true. And I think that, you know, uh, I know certainly President Trump's been trying to say that kids don't get COVID-19 here in the United States. But the the current uh, 
crop of people that have been tested, uh, in some states, it's as high as 19% of the people that are testing positive are under the age of 17. So um, kids do get the coronavirus. And, in fact, there was some very recent research. And, again, this is constantly changing all the time. So I think your listeners will probably feel like they're just, you know, being jerked from one place to the other. But that's just because there's, there's so much developing research every day. Originally, there was thought that there was very little um, uh, receptive host cells in, in little kids, little kids under the age of 10 um, in their nasal passages, which is why they didn't get the illness. But a recent study that just came out last week said that, no, in reality, that they actually were holding more virus in their nasal passages and in their lungs. Uh, and again, if you look at how you might be caring for a young child, you know, parents often their face is right in the face of a little kid or a school teacher or a daycare provider. Um, and so, gosh, you know, the chances of a, a small child being ill and maybe not even being symptomatic, but being able to affect, um, infect a lot of uh, older people is, is a significant risk. Well, I, I I agree with you. I think schools need to be really flexible, but so do um, you know, uh, as you hinted at, organizations. You know, if they go back to um, roughly you know a March timeframe, either beginning, middle, or end, when everybody was told to go home and work, you know, including schools, that's going to happen again. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I think the the thing that people just have to be planning on is that they have to be flexible and they have to be willing to need need and plan to flip instantly when all of a sudden um, things yeah. change. And that school learning again, you know, may be like with work. Maybe what happens is that people are just having schedules that are all over the map to be able to fit everything in. And I think employers, to the best of their ability, can need to be flexible as they can to support their employees and their families because it's going to be stressful for everybody. Yeah, well, they say, you know, the nine to five uh, uh, time frame or work day is disappearing. Well, COVID-19 right. is, I think, going to definitely do that. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move to the uh, the next item we wanted to touch on. You know, we in the United States, I know you're in um, uh, hurricane and tornado mm-hmm. season. You know, so with a lot of organizations, communities and even individuals, how, what do we do when there's more than one disaster? Because we've got COVID going for potentially another year or more, and we've got hurricanes and tornadoes you know, and other disasters that are occurring right now. How do we go about managing and preparing ourselves? You know, this is a huge issue, um, Alex, and certainly in the United States, and it will very likely be an issue in Canada and around the world as well. As you aptly mentioned, you know, in the United States here, we're in the middle of a bunch of seasons that all come together. So in the spring, we had lots of tornadoes. Uh, right now, in as of August um, uh, 11th, so I, my date is about six days old, we had 10 large fires burning in the United States, and there are 46... Uh, national fires that have already built, burned 300,000 acres in the U.S. There's a huge fire burning in Los Angeles right now. And, and of course, the, the need for firefighters and how they're housed and all of that. Uh, hurricane, the hurricane season has really already taken off. I mean, we're already to jade. Tropical storm Josephine is expected to form into a hurricane uh, and, and very shortly. And so that will be uh, the earliest J ever recorded on record. And as you know, the the uh, names for the um, Atlantic storms are alphabetical, and um, they're A through W usually in most years, and we're already going to hit J, the earliest ever. And then I don't know if you heard about this, but this last week in the United States there was a derecho, and a derecho is a is like a inland hurricane where 
the the winds will exceed often 110 miles per hour that devastated devastated uh, Iowa. And what was interesting is that it's like people weren't even paying attention, and Iowa was like not even noticed that they had had this gigantic crisis till about Wednesday. So about 48 hours had gone by, and they're still just starting to get aid. And if you have the opportunity to just do a Google search of the derecho in Iowa, you'll see thousands of acres of corn flat as a pancake. Um, and many, many houses destroyed. Uh, and this not just wasn't just in Iowa, but it's in Nebraska, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Uh, huge power outages. And again, think about all the people with COVID losing their home, being in this kind of situation. Um, and so we have wildfires, we have hurricanes, and you know, hopefully not earthquakes. But you're you're, a, you're in your area, you have earthquakes to deal with as well. So. What happens is you have these kinds of events. And what normally happens, right? People get evacuated from their house. Then you get into shelters. You have to deal with feeding people, getting, making sure they have medical support. Often there are volunteers that come to help, uh, as well as other entities. So how do you manage, and this is the challenge, Alex, how do you manage sheltering with covid you know, we're not going to be in cots right next to each other. They have to be at least six feet apart. What about things like enough personal protective equipment? What about enough hand washing and hand sanitizing? And the fear that people may, maybe even people don't want to evacuate because they're afraid of where they're going to go and what's going to happen to them and them potentially be getting exposed to COVID. Huge from, from one disaster to another. Exactly, exactly. And, and there's a lot of concern about how this is going to be managed. And so there's been a lot of work that's been done. FEMA has actually done some very good training and documents. So if your listeners want to read, because this would apply not just to hurricanes, but FEMA put out a document called COVID-19 Pandemic Operational Guidance for the 2020 Hurricane Season. COVID-19 Pandemic Operational Guidance for the 2020 Hurricane Season. That was released on May of 2020. It would be applicable, though, for if you had an evacuations because of fires or if you had an evacuations because of earthquakes or anything else. Because, again, this need to evacuate, shelter, provide all of this assistance. But I think the thing I don't know about in Canada, but here in the United States, who often goes to help in the case of a big disaster are volunteers. And many of those volunteers are also older. Uh, and then many of them have volunteered at shelters and done Red course work for years. But there's a big concern, of course, that maybe they shouldn't be volunteering because of their age and possible comorbidities. And so that means that there may be a great need for more people who aren't, aren't, aren't normally doing this or are, are not trained about how to come in and do shelters. So there's a big concern that there'll be an overall shortage of available workers to actually help with this. Well, it's interesting you just mentioned that. Do you think there we have an opportunity here to uh, begin training um, people like like they did? Um, and I know they did this because my granddad used to tell me about it. You know, mm. uh, during World War II, where yeah. people were trained on um, civil defense uh, civil defense type of activities. Do we have that same kind of uh, opportunity here to train individuals and and put together these kind of teams to help? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. And I know that many communities have those, but normally and traditionally those trainings are done where you know you would go to a school or you would go to some location to get trained up. But in reality, I think they're going to need to think about how to progress more of that training, potentially to virtual training, so that people could be trained in their home and then go into assist. But you're absolutely right, Alex. There needs to be a way to educate a whole bunch of new people to come and really help when we have these kinds of crises because the usual workers may not be able to come because of their age and other health issues that put them at even greater risk. Well, what, what's happening now? Do you, are you aware of any some of some of the challenges? Well, I, actually, you mentioned fires in California. So, yep. what? Because I, I know you're you live out that way. What what kind of challenges are being experienced with regards to you know the fire? I know there's a, a large fire um, around Los Angeles. Right. You know, are, they must be well, experiencing that same type of of issue. How are? Do you know how they're addressing that? Well, what they're doing is a very different model, and I, and I, I think this is actually, uh, it, it works out, I guess, that nobody is traveling for, for work or tourism because there's a large amount of hotel rooms that are available, right? So this is unusual in the sense of just think of the number of hotel rooms in your country, certainly in the United States, that are empty today because no one's traveling for business and no one's traveling for a usual kind of tourist experience. So well, so far, what's been the solution uh, and that has worked well, at least in California, is that they've been utilizing hotels that are empty because there's nobody traveling. And that's where they've been shed- setting up shelters right now in Southern California. That works well in the fire scenario, but may not work well, for example, in the director that they had in Iowa because so many buildings were damaged. And so they're putting up tents and, and those kinds of solutions, and it wouldn't work very well, very likely, in a hurricane environment as well. But in fires, it happens to work well. So they've been doing the traditional kind of evacuation. They've been doing lots of messaging, utilizing emergency notification systems. And what they've been doing is sheltering people, utilizing hotels, with the government just picking up that bill rather than trying to set up the usual conventional uh, sheltering systems. So with 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 that using hotels and, and, and tents, um, are there? Well, you already kind of went over the pros and cons of both, but how how do we get people to um, I get I guess adapt to that kind of thing? How do we change their mindset that hey, you know, even with COVID nineteen going on, we we can still set you up somewhere else. How do we change? Yeah, that that's because you mentioned that's a big that concern, and, and they've had some problems. Actually, in the fires where people were very reluctant to go seek assistance, uh, you know, maybe uh, instead of just deciding to, to camp in their cars because they thought it might be safer. So there really is a big outreach that needs to happen on the part of the government by either sending out emergency notification systems or sending out volunteers or social workers to, to really look and see who might need assistance because some people are trying to sort of rough it out on their own because they're too afraid to to potentially look into shelters, not knowing what the solutions might be. And this sort of ties to, I think, another significant problem that we're seeing, and that is the issue of just the overall mental health, if you will, and the stamina, both of responders, but also of people that are evacuees. So, you know, people are already under a lot of stress. I don't know about you, Alex, but certainly I, I some days I really feel that from the stress of the pandemic. But also everyone feels that. So can you imagine here you've got this big global crisis with healthcare, 
and a disease that's rampant that could kill you, and now you've got a fire, tornado, earthquake, whatever the situation might be, and you have that stress on top of it. And then think about all of our government workers who normally do this for a living, emergency managers and business continuity professionals and companies who have been responding to this for months, right? So people are a little tired, right? They're probably a little burned out. And so I think the, uh, another disaster on top of this is like, oh, my gosh, one more thing, yeah. right? And, and people, I think, are potentially going to be fragile and maybe, maybe, maybe um, more emotional. Maybe this could exacerbate people's preexisting mental conditions. Or I don't know. There's a lot of concern about people's mental health with the, with the pandemic in general. But then if we have something on top of it, like a fire or a tornado or, or hurricane or something else, just how much can people take? Well, everybody's got a breaking point. You know, uh, even the Dalai right. Lama says he gets mad sometimes at some people. You know, so, right. You know, we, we only have two minutes left. Do you have, uh, you know, want to take a minute for any final thoughts or comments? Well, what I would say to all of your uh, listeners is that this idea of an additional disaster on top of an existing COVID crisis is something that everybody should really think about. So I would really encourage all of your listeners to not think like, oh, my gosh, it couldn't happen. What they really need to do is think about what can we learn from the past from the, these types of disasters that we've had before. We want to make sure that our plans are in the best shape as possible and that people are trained up, and that we have the supplies that we need in order to manage COVID and uh, whatever could happen to us, like a tornado, hurricane, earthquake, et cetera, because it could happen. And already in the United States, we've had many, many disasters that have been simultaneous to the pandemic, and we need to really stay flexible, take good care of ourselves, be concerned about our own mental health, and really exhibit... um, of the leadership that our profession is known for. We have a lot of energy and we have a lot of resiliency, and those are really precious commodities during this prolonged state of crisis. And we need to just think about think about adaptation and that we can do it. And I think that's a perfect spot to end our show today. Regina, thanks very much. It's always interesting and great to chat with you. You're welcome, Alex. It's always a great pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, and like to remind everyone, if there is a topic, please re- feel free, reach out, and we'll see about getting you on the show. And uh, obviously, we're going to have Regina back next next month uh, to see where we are you know, in a month, hopefully in better places, fingers crossed. In the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.